So, you know, we talked earlier about how when we get higher on our list, some of these picks might get older. Mm. It seems like a certainty. And I've noticed that this episode that we're about to do now has 10 albums. So half of the show mm-hmm. will be albums that were 1980 or earlier. So that's sort of a, is that a disclaimer to the listener? No, I just Get ready think, for uh, the, the geese fest. I think we're proving uh, our earlier theory because you had a lot of picks from the last 20 years, which kind of surprised me early on. And you kept saying, mm-hmm. yeah, well, that will change. <laughs> I think you're, yeah, you're, you're just sure. throwing all these uh, newer releases uh, out before you get to the stuff that we really cherished. It's, uh, from- it had to go through that filter of, uh, and, I, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, of, of how often did I listen to this? And, and if it, did I listen to it enough that it's worthy to be in these these places, these different slots on this 100? Yeah. So the, the, the stuff that we're, that we're adding now as we get into the top 50, you know, there's just a much deeper time spent listening for any of those. So that means this is our oldest episode yet. Yes. From Portland, Oregon, I'm Jeff Payne. I'm Kevin Toon. This is The Pick. Where today we answer that age-old question, who is this doing this synthetic type of alpha-beta psychedelic funk? So the top 50, Kevin, we've made it halfway. Yeah, you kind of look back behind you and think, wow, we did all that. And then you look ahead and go, oh, shit, we got a long way to go. Yeah, and but I, uh, like I said s- several times, it gets more exciting each time because I get, uh, when I listen to these albums and prepare uh, for the show, I just uh, I just love it more and more each time. And uh, we actually have had like a, over a month since we recorded the last one, so I've listened to this batch quite a bit. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it is... As you, as we get higher and higher, and we keep, and I, I, every time I say that, I think as I smoke more weed and listen to these, um, same as you, when I'm when I'm going back and and preparing notes for these, and and I'm like, wow, this was really an album I got so into, it was so great, and then you've you've had it on the shelf for so long, it's really fun to go back and go, wow, this was something so cool at a time where I just really connected with this. Yeah, and I think our listeners are connecting to it, too. We're getting a lot of great feedback and more calls to the pick line. And uh, it is still open for anyone that wants to call for the pick 3-4. That's 484-374-2534. Call the pick line and let us know your favorite albums of all time. Or you can also just call and praise us, criticize us, whatever. I mean, you know, a lot of Kevin's picks deserve some feedback, I think. Oh, subtle, yeah. very subtle uh, way to say, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> let, let them know that uh, this is horseshit. <laughs> also, the pickcast.com is our website. You can subscribe there to get emails just when we uh, release a new episode. Not a lot of emails. We don't fill your inbox with you know stuff. It's not like Groupon. It's just a couple of uh, couple of emails a month. Also on the website, thepickcast.com slash 100, you can see the list as it builds, as well as playlists and other features from each episode. So get on it, folks. Do you think it's going to be maybe get a little combative, too, as we get in further into the 50? Because we're going to have a lot of, and we're going to see it on this one, we're going to have a lot of... Uh, duplicity a lot of duplicate picks right uh, stuff that i choose that will show up later for you or that you've already reviewed so i'm a little nervous about that actually because i i know i know with for with certainty that i've got a couple here that are high on your list and so i'm sort of anxious about how you're going to react i uh i i think we might get a little tense here and in fact as we get started now uh as we get started now i'm a little nervous to start because i oh I, with my with uh, my number 50 my, my number 50 Oh, okay, okay, yeah, good, good call. Actually, this is gonna um, this is gonna go both ways. I just I'm not sure because it's <laughs> uh, this one's sacred to you, and I'm mm. a little bit I'm a little bit afraid of saying something wrong. All right, that's a theme our our audience should get used to. Yeah, your instincts serve you well here, dude. You should be nervous. <laughs> As the '80s became the '90s. You two were at their peak as their fifth album, Joshua Tree, became an instant classic. Pressure was on for a worthy follow-up, and they certainly delivered. This is 1990's Actung Baby.
Some will dispute this was the follow-up to Joshua Tree as I'm skipping 1988's Rattle and Hum. But that was a half-live album and really kind of a soundtrack to the documentary film. So to me, Octung is their true follow-up studio album. For many, Octung Baby and Joshua Tree are virtually tied for U2's greatest. And it was really pretty remarkable for a band to release two incredible albums right in a row, but that are also very sonically different. I remember seeing this tour in Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. I was on the upper level in the last row, and Bono indeed looked like a fly with his bug-eyed glasses way, way down there on the field. When listening to this record, you just have so many great tunes, and you forget that still ahead, you get the album's biggest single, Mysterious Ways. So, Kevin, I ain't going to say much else because I suspect this will be a top tenor for you. It's, well, you're, you're close. Uh, it's in that neighborhood. I don't want to reveal too much. But I think it's interesting that you raised the, the question of what's kind of the great debate among the YouTube hardcore fans, which I, I am part of that community, is that there is sort of that divide of are you... Are you on the side of Joshua Tree or are you on the, are you on the side of Octung Baby as their greatest record? And it's a pretty heated debate. Yeah, I imagine so. I've, I've seen both of them listed as the top uh, on various lists. And for me, it's, I just kind of say uh, they're, they're very close for me. But uh, spoiler alert, Joshua Tree will appear later for me <laughs> uh, higher up on my list. Yeah, you and I landed that same camp. It's so funny. I had an exact similar experience concert-wise as you did on this tour. Uh, The tickets were so hard to get, and I wound up at the top of the Tacoma Dome of all places, (laughs) early 1992. And yes, it was like Bono was literally this little speck on the stage. Yeah. So that's number 50, 1991, Octung Baby by U2. For my number 50, I was playing catch-up throughout the 90s when it came to the blossoming alt-rock scene. And case in point, this pick, number 50, Odelay, the fifth studio album from Beck. This record came out in 1996, and I actually didn't first hear it until about a year later. A friend put it on in the car as we were driving somewhere. We got stuck in traffic. An hour later, after hearing it nearly twice through, I had gone from, what the heck is this, to, wow, I need to buy this CD. Because, of course, that's what we did back then. Odelay is Beck's major label follow-up to 1994's Mellow Gold. The question the critics were asking then, could this newcomer deliver a follow-up of comparable quality? Well, Odelay checks that box and more. This album actually started out with an acoustic and kind of melancholy focus, but at some point, Beck pivoted, brought in new producers that were rooted in hip-hop, and he created a layered, quirky, brilliant, pop masterpiece. Here's a great quote from Rolling Stone's 1996 review by Mark Kemp. Like the Beastie Boys, Beck is among the few white boy hip-hop wannabes with a clue. goes on to say that Beck truly understands that tenuous thread that connects funk to punk, hip-hop to art rock, and jazz to country blues, and he's able to cram his encyclopedic knowledge of 20th century musical styles into three and four minute nuggets of pure pop. So listening to Odelay again this week, 
What was true for me then, Jeff, is the same today. Beck creates a sound and a style that I just hadn't heard before. There's a complexity to the production, but it keeps a general pop simplicity, sprinkled with hip-hop groove and the occasional grungy distortion. I saw one description of this record that describes it a mix of alt-rock, folk-rock, rap-rock, neo-psychedelia, whatever that is, alternative hip-hop, sample-delia, that's a new one, and garage rock. That I think that kind of encapsulates, for me at least, Beck's genius. Is He just has so much going on with his music, but somehow he just blends it all together, and it's fantastic. Bottles and cans, clap your hands. Sample Delia? What is it? Sample Delia. Sample Delia. I like that. Yeah. Yes, I. Uh, this album came out in 96, and 95 was when I moved to the beach in uh, L.A. and started my uh, five years of uh, bliss, which I consider my nirvana period of life. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the most significant soundtrack to that period of my life because it came out when I got there and played pretty much the whole time I was there. Um, it's higher on my list. Not offended by your placement here. It's uh, okay. It's acceptable. Okay. Uh, it's, it, it's it's an eclectic album if there ever was one. Oh yeah. He definitely burst onto the scene as uh, he he'd done the song "I'm a Loser Baby" and that which was already kind of a fun unusual song. Yeah. But this album came out with a whole collection of just off the charts strangeness, but yeah. so much fun. It's not awkward to listen to it, even though it is eclectic. It's fun. Yeah, no, it has a beat. Yeah. You can you can dance to a lot of it. It's, it works in just about every respect. And for a wannabe beach bum like me with my flip-flops on all the time, it was perfect. Well said. Yeah, I, I, I think another word to, that came to mind when I was listening to this to describe this record is smart. There's a lot of really interesting lyrics in here. And, and it isn't just... There, there are other moments, too, that are, that are interesting. He slows it down. Uh, he'll use distortion rather, you know, uh, overtly in a couple of spots, so it, almost, it has a little grunginess to it too. Just again, I don't know that anything has really come along since that comes close to this in terms of that absolute mishmash of styles. Absolutely, on probably most lists of the greatest rock albums of all time. So that's my number fifty pick, Odile from Beck. One of the most enduring debut albums in rock history. This is the Cars' self-titled release from 1978. Every track here got radio airplay for decades after the album's release. Every track. And six of the nine were really in heavy rotation. Described as new wave, power pop, or synth rock, the cars may have stood out as different in the late 70s, but as the 80s rolled on, they just kind of became considered more rock and pop. She's 1984's Heartbeat City would crank out more charting singles, but these songs from their amazing debut remained ubiquitous throughout the 80s and beyond. And if that wasn't enough from side one, side two delivers three more hits with nary a space in between. had enough hits, the penultimate track is one immortalized, Kevin, by any man in our age range, by the amazing Phoebe Cates. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, after Fast Times at Ridgemont High unfurled in theaters, and her bikini top unfurled before the eyes of every enraptured teenage boy in America, 
<laughs> this song could never be heard the same way again. Life's the same, I'm moving in stereo. Life's the same, except for my shoes. I honestly used to think this album was the greatest hits album, uh, and apparently the band used to joke that the album should be called that. I think a large part of their success is the accessibility of the music. It's not heavily rock, it's not heavily new wave, and not syrupy pop. Just non-offensive to everyone, tolerated by heavier rockers, and danceable for pop-loving teens. Kevin, I can't tell you, this is kind of just like a soundtrack to my teenage years. You just, if you weren't listening to the album, you would hear it on the radio every day. Yeah, Jeff, this is a great, great pick. Uh, And one of those where uh, I thought, wow, how did I miss that? But I didn't listen to it uh, as an album much. I heard all of these radio songs on rock radio, on on hit radio uh, in the early 80s. This band was super busy from like 78 through 84. I mean, they cranked out five, six albums, I believe, during that time. Yeah. This is this is the best, I, in my opinion. I mean, it's funny to look at the Wikipedia page for this record where they list the track listings and every single song links to another page, right? So yeah. all of these songs, you know, have got achieved some kind of status or some kind of following. It's, yeah. it's that rare record where every single track sort of stands out in some way yeah it's kind of incredible that uh heartbeat city came out when we were in high school and so yeah. that was really really played a lot when in in you know in my key years of high school but really when it's all said and done these songs are just are better the better it's a better album it's more rock yes. i think uh heartbeat city just got a little too poppy with uh, magic and then you know drive is a great song but it's you know it's a slow song which this album doesn't really have one Right, right. So um, when, when you look back, uh, this album d- has been the biggest seller ever, even though Heartbeat City had more singles. And it, it's just the one that lasts. And it's, it was their first one. It was their debut. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I, can't, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, the, the one other thing I'll say about this is, this is, to me, this is the definitive Cars sound. As you say, as we got further into Shake It Up and later, you might think a lot more synth pop influence this has an edge to it that i think is their true sound and as as you said that that guitar uh, edginess but blended so well with the the sound of new wave released in june 1978 this is the cars debut album my pick at number 49 okay so for my number 49 pick it's the gods of hard rock Credit ultimately goes to Jeff for my inclusion of Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy from 1973 on this list. And this comes straight from the college years. So my first Zepp collection prior to college had Into the Outdoor, which was actually my first purchase, and then Led Zepp 4 and 2. But I'm pretty sure it was a conversation not unlike those that we have right here on this podcast that eventually led to you putting together a little Maxell cassette for me called, and I'm reading it, I'm reading from it because I have it, Led Zeppelin, Some of the Best. Several tracks from this album were on that cassette, and not not long after, this CD was in my library. Because again, you know, we collected CDs then. Houses of the Holy only has eight tracks, but it wouldn't surprise me if all of them were standard ingredients for today's classic rock radio playlist. Songs like this one, Dancing Days, have been mainstays in the format for 20 plus years. Houses of the Holy is the follow-up to Zeppelin's massive top seller, Led Zeppelin IV, which of course included Stairway to Heaven. This record makes a definite stylistic shift, which you get almost immediately from track two, The Rain Song. Apparently, George Harrison of the Beatles actually inspired Jimmy Page to produce this song. Harrison had complained that Led Zeppelin to that point had never done any ballads. And this was Page's response. Pretty cool. The second season, I am to know. You 
Wikipedia describes this record as an abandonment of the band's previous weighty dark blues distortion in favor of a cleaner, more expansive sound. And writers have called it a diverse collection of rockers, ballads, reggae, funk, and 50s-style rock and roll. It's my number 49 pick, Houses of the Holy from Led Zeppelin. Yes, astute listeners may remember that I had this at number 60 in the last episode. Zeppelin is one of those bands that I've never really listed as like being my all-time favorite bands. But when I look at my list, I guess they really are. Yeah, I would would guess that both of us will have three, four albums from them when we're all said and done on this top 100. Yeah, it's kind of hard to avoid them when you uh, have spent your life listening to rock music and... Loving it and collecting it. But definitely a good pick. A Rain Song is one of my favorite songs on here. I didn't pick it last time, so I'm glad you picked it now. At my number 48, it's the first appearance on the list from an artist who will feature prominently in my top 50. This is Liz Fair's third studio album, White Chocolate Space Egg. I kind of consider Fair to be the queen of indie rock. Her first album was released in 1993, so it was early in the decade that I was really discovering so many artists and my tastes were evolving and twisting all over the place. I'll talk a lot more about her as she's also higher on my list. But this album was released in 1998, four years after her second album, and five years after her smash debut. I think that gap may have hurt her momentum a bit as she's never really been able to break into the superstar status that I think she deserves. But I was a solid fan. I swapped this album up quickly. I saw her perform in downtown LA's Mayan Theater, which was a pretty cool venue, but still pretty small and intimate. On this record, she stayed true to form with some raunchy and controversial lyrics, as in this song called Johnny Feelgood, where she enjoys being knocked around by her boyfriend. I actually saw a live stream show of hers uh, just this week, in fact, and this is one of the songs they played. She talked about it as well, that she was really trying to just take, really take the overt sexuality that male rock and roll artists had been doing for decades and make it part of her own, make it, make it a woman's right to sing about this stuff too. And to ask those kind of questions, those taboo questions, that even from a feminist perspective would be taboo, is it all right to say that I kind of like my boyfriend when he roughs me around a bit? Is that okay to talk about that? Is it okay to sing about it? And that's what she's always done. She's always been out there pushing those boundaries that we really don't think about when they're pushed by men. That song aside, this album deals less with sex and dating than her earlier albums did, and a little bit more with family and motherhood. Part of the reason for the four-year gap was getting married and and the birth of her son. And the album's title, White Chocolate Space Egg, which is written all as one word, is a reference to her newborn's head when Liz first saw her child. A couple of my favorite songs on here, this one playing now is called Polyester Bride, which is probably also the most popular on the album. My other favorite comes up near the end. It's called What Makes You Happy. 
and she's singing to her mother and telling her to not worry that the guy she's found now is probably the one. Kevin, it's a little awkward for me to discuss her first three albums in the reverse order of their release, since we are doing the counting down rather than counting up. I can say that since her 1993 debut, she has always been one of my favorite artists. An indie girl, not afraid to push boundaries, sometimes coming across as vulgar, but really doing nothing more than her male predecessors have done. Just being honest and open about her sexuality, something that female singers in the 80s and 90s could often find difficult to pull off. I really enjoyed listening to this. I had not gotten into Liz Fair really at all during the 90s. You said something at the beginning that goes to a question I was thinking about as I was listening to her to this record. You said she took some significant time off over the span of her first three albums. And I wonder, do you suppose she got sort of overshadowed by Sheryl Crow? Because they do sound similar during that period. I never thought about that really. Uh, I, I think it was just that you mentioned her vocals, and she's not the most incredible vocalist out there. Sometimes mm-hmm. she even, uh, somewhat intentionally, I think, sings a little bit out of tune. But I, yeah. I think that her music wasn't quite as accessible to a pop audience as Cheryl Crow's was. Right. And Cheryl, right. to me, was always a little bit edging onto the country scene as well. I just think mm-hmm. that Liz never really got her pop chance. She actually... Uh, her album after this which was several years later another big gap was a self-titled album called Liz Fair and it was actually kind of an album some of her Mm -hmm. fans considered a sellout because she consciously and admittedly tried to release her pop album tried like the album that would get her some top 10 singles and stuff and it did it did all well and I liked the album just not as much as her first three and uh, it was kind of refreshing for her to admit I'm kind of trying to sell out here I want to try to have that shot at becoming a pop star didn't really work but it's still a good album and i think that just goes to show that she's just she's just an indie girl and she always will be and i still call her an indie girl even though she's my age and this summer she just released her seventh studio album called soberish and it's a good one i immediately when i when i as i was going through these tracks i I just assumed johnny feelgood would have been a single uh but it wasn't because it, it has the sound to me of something that should have gotten radio airplay yeah well, I'm excited for you to listen then to uh, her first album, Exile in Guyville, and also her second album, Whip Smart. They'll be coming up on my list. Because if you enjoyed this, I think you'll uh, equally enjoy those, if not more. Cool. White Chocolate Space Egg from 1998 by Liz Fair, my number 48. Okay, my number 48. I feel compelled to issue a mandatory disclaimer here at the start. I fully recognize the greatness of this album and its proper place at or near the top of all-time greatest lists. But here, for me, it's number 48. It's never mine, Nirvana, 1991, the holy grail of the grunge explosion of the early 90s, and in a broader sense, the catalyst for a decade of music from the broader alt-rock sound that defined the decade. You have to start with side one, track one, Smells Like Teen Spirit, an anthem, and the song that's synonymous with this band. It's a song that will likely always be on this very short list of game changers for the entire rock era. The songs of this record were influenced by bands like R.E.M., The Pixies, and The Smithereens. It's actually Nirvana's second album, but a much more radio-friendly collection than Bleach, their debut. It also marks the debut of some guy named Grohl as their drummer. Wonder where he is today. I'm so happy cause today found my friends in my head. 
It's said that Kurt Cobain, now get this, wanted this record to combine the sound of mainstream pop bands, The Knack and the Bay City Rollers with heavier rock bands like Black Flag and Black Sabbath. Think about that for a second as you listen to this third single from the album, Lithium. So beyond its status as a cornerstone of grunge, to me, Nevermind's greatness is also tied to its diversity, which includes acoustic balladry on songs like Polly. Polly wants a cracker. Think I should get off her first. Think she wants some water to put out the blowtorch. A simple sound, a lot different from many of the other tracks on the record. I would encourage the listener to go research the uh, backstory on that song. Quite shocking, actually. In his 1993 Nirvana biography, author Michael Azerod said that Nevermind marked both a generational shift in music similar to the rock and roll explosion of the 50s and the end of the baby boomer generation's dominance of the musical landscape. Rolling Stone placed it number 17 on its initial list of the 500 greatest, saying that, I love this, no album in recent history had such an overpowering impact on a generation. A nation of teens suddenly turned punk, but also such a catastrophic effect on its main creator. Love that quote. In their latest updated list in 2020, Rolling Stone ranked, never mind, number five all time. That's my number 48 pick. All right, so you're gonna you're gonna tease us with the backstory on Polly and not tell us? <laughs> well, uh, no, I'll tell you. It's inspired by a serial rapist, I believe, that was uh, terrorizing the Puget Sound area. Cobain got obsessed with the story, and in the song, he tells the story of the rapist abducting a young woman from a concert, but he tells it from the perspective of the rapist. Right. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, I, I, it was always a, a little bit of a shock to hear. I think she wants some water to put out the blowtorch. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I kind of laughed to myself when you said, when you called it, that song a ballad. Uh, <laughs> an acoustic, well, I was an talking about ballad. just balladry in general. I, yes, I know, but it's still uh, acoustic, yes, but a ballad? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's... <laughs> whether you're talking about ballad as a, a style of the music or... Uh, the tone of the lyrics, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. It's not exactly a ballad in the sense of, you know, Island in the Streams is a ballad, right? Correct. So, yeah, you're pushing it a bit, Kevin. You put overlay and Nevermind <laughs> down here in the 40s, but uh, wow. I'll, I'll let it slide because uh, okay. because uh, Nevermind, uh, for me, it, it's higher on the list, but it's not as high as you might expect. And you, okay. might find, you might be a little surprised by my Nirvana choices later in this countdown. Interesting. Well, I definitely appreciate your patience with my uh, choices so far. Yeah, and it's also interesting to me when I was researching uh, In Utero, which was in the last episode for me, that the band wasn't really that as happy with this album and wanted to do a better job with In Utero, um, which huh. uh, was kind of interesting to hear, especially Kurt. He was, uh, I think he was a little turned off by how popular this album became. It was a surprise in a, in a broader sense, too. I, I think when you read about the history of this record, it, it literally came out of nowhere. And so maybe that's a reflection of what the expectations of the band were relative to just the amazing reaction by the listening audience. All right, time now to go to the pick line. Hi, this is Bob again. I'm calling from Burbank, California, and um, I don't know if you allow me to pick other things, but uh, between the two spices, turmeric and cumin, I pick turmeric. Um, cumin just sounds dirty to me. If this is not the place where I can choose a spice, uh, please uh, give me that information separately. Uh, but yes, I pick turmeric. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Bob. Thank you. We... Uh, welcome any picks here on the pick. Sure. You don't have to stick to your favorite albums or anything, and we really appreciate your choice of spice. 
Plus, I didn't know that you pronounced it turmeric. I thought it was turmeric. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it definitely does sound less dirty than cumin. <laughs> Let's go to another call now where people actually picked albums. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Kevin. It's your girl from The Way with Dad and Tay. We've been meaning to get these over to you for a while now, but here are each of our top five albums. Chanting. So my top five albums are A Seat at the Table by Solange Knowles, Thank You Next by Ariana Grande, Usher's My Way, Nothing Was the Same by Drake, and JoJo's 2004 self-titled album. And Jasmine's are Andre 3000's The Love Below, Drake's Take Care album, Kanye West's Late Registration, The Dream's Love Hate, and also Ariana Grande's Thank You Next album. We hope you've been having a great year so far. Looking forward to speaking with you guys soon. Bye! Bye! Thought I'd end up with Sean, but it wasn't a match. And a little bit from an artist who will definitely not be on Kevin in my list, Ariana Grande, and Thank You Next, title track. I don't mean to diss her. I think she's a great artist, uh, and she's extremely successful and talented. Uh, just not somebody that uh, was around probably early enough for us. I think Madonna is the one that uh, makes our list for being the Ariana Grande of our earlier years. <laughs> exactly. Well, the Love Below did make my my cut list. Uh, it was in my my second group. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's a. I mean, I think of it more as an Outcast record, but uh, it was a, it was a game changer. I thought during its time. So, so Jazz and Tay hosts a podcast uh, and radio program in Seattle called The Way with Jazz and Tay, and we were guests on their show in November of 2020. And we'll put a link to the video of that guest appearance, which we have not yet shown, but we'll put that link on the Pick 100 page on our website. Excellent. We need to have them on our show. I, 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 I like their list a lot, actually. It's definitely newer stuff than ours, but of course, oh, they're, yeah. they're about 20 years younger than, or 25 years younger than us. So. <laughs> yes, yes, but lots of different options on these lists, so it'd be fun to dig into some of these with them and just get the backstory. And those top five lists from Jazz and Tay are on our website, as always, thepickcast.com slash 100. And we move on now to number 47, and I really love this album, but I have to say that um, as I listened to it several times over the last few weeks, I, I could kind of just imagine you listening to it uh, for the sake of the show for the first time you've ever heard it probably. <laughs> And mm -hmm. I uh, just kind of laughed to myself when I would uh, hear uh, great passages like this one in Piku. I'm not looping this or uh, editing it at all. This is how it comes across on the album. Okay. See a little bit of a change there. <laughs> Subtle. Or this one from another song. Again, not editing this. <laughs> I'm just picturing you listening to this. Going, what in the hell? Well, this one from the title track, Dig Your Own Hole. Did you like this song? Well, like's a really strong word. Um, I definitely said what the hell several times. And I at least was reminded that... Uh, you know, the human nervous system can just only take so much in terms of the uh, repetition. And then I started to think, well, yeah, maybe that's what the artist was going for there. Let's just put out something that's just going to you know, torture people. Well, the repetition and the monotony aside, that's pretty much <laughs> good work. Good work. <laughs> that's pretty much what EDM was. It released in 1997. It was probably my introduction to true EDM, electronic dance music. This is the Chemical Brothers. Dig your own hole. By this time, we had heard lots of strange electronic music ever since Kraftwerk pioneered it. But this British duo is a mix of sampling, electro beats, dance beats. It was a new sensation. That's got to be my favorite passage on this whole album. Who is this doing this synthetic type of alpha beta psychedelic funkin'? 
This is their most successful record, a total of nine, which they've released, and they're still going. After this, they drifted a little bit more into vocal tracks, which there are some on this album, but for me, it's all about the glorious non-stop assault on the census. Hmm. So it's got some heavy bass tracks, also some really cool funk tracks. What's this one called? Lost in the K-hole. I like this one. And finally, one of my favorites, uh, the only track that has any slow part at all, Where Do We Begin, featuring Beth Orton. I've talked a lot about the 90s on this show and how it really ushered in electronica onto my radar. And this was probably the record most responsible. Massive Attack, Propeller Heads, Morchiba all followed this one. I saw these guys in concert for this album and it was just basically two guys standing behind keyboards and uh, some fairly impressive lights, but nothing else. And uh, I went with my friend Mike and, and he was just like, that was the stupidest show I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't wrong. It was just kind of dumb to sit there. Why don't we just play the album rather than watch two guys stand still? Right. And oh I, I think it was early in the uh, in the performance era of these types of groups. Um, I saw Odessa a couple of years ago here in Portland at the Coliseum. And they're the same thing. They're two guys. And they mostly were standing behind keyboards. But they just had all these different guests. They had a whole drum line come out. They had a saxophonist on one side, guitarist. They had hmm. different vocalists, amazing light shows, a huge screen with really interesting imagery. One of the best shows I've ever seen. While Chemical Brothers' first show was one of the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> so I think the I think the genre has evolved. But this was the early days of Chemical Brothers, and the only album of theirs that's on my list. Well, I really I kudos to you for a, a great description. The Glorious assault on the senses. Yes. That's definitely uh, what that felt like when I was sampling the, the tracks uh, for this episode. I would take issue with the use of the word "glorious" <laughs> only for only for me personally. But it sounds like the the chemical <laughs> the chemical brothers stubbornly stuck to their vision <laughs> when you when you attended that show uh, with Mike uh, those year those many years ago. Um, Applause for the for the unique vision. Uh, I just I, I have a pretty limited threshold. I think on a sensory level, when it comes to just kind of the same stuff over and over again. The one tune though uh, is it chalk rock and beats something like that. Block that rock had, and beats. Yeah. Yeah. It's that yeah. one gave me some you know a, a broader landscape. Yeah. So I was able to get into that one a little more. Yeah. There's some there's some diversity here, but there's definitely long passages of just. <laughs> repetitive electronic sounds that yeah i mean for me it's just the beat that keeps going that i can get into and i and i think uh, i think this album kind of uh was the first one that really got me over that hump yeah but also what it also i think is unique in the chemical brothers uh albums because they did later get into a lot more vocal tracks Mm -hmm. a little bit more of a traditional dance music sound whereas this one was really heavily electronic So number 47 from 1997, the Chemical Brothers dig your own hole. Oh, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, uh, you've been very patient uh, so far, Jeff, but it sounds like that's come to an end. Uh, For many of you, including my partner in crime here, this placement on my list. What are you thinking? In the top 100 at 47, probably nothing short of pure blasphemy. It's certified 25 times platinum now from July of 1980, Back in Black by ACDC. (laughs) 
All right, so you pushed the limit with Beck, and you pushed it a little bit more with Nirvana, and now you've gone over the edge. <laughs> well, there's a lot of reasons behind this, but let me just give my story here first. This album is a triumph over tragedy, specifically the alcohol poisoning death of lead singer Bon Scott in February of 1980. Back in Black took ACDC to another level. Critics have also said it revived the heavy metal genre and set the standard for metal and hard rock albums that followed. I have a hard time seeing this as a metal record, frankly, particularly with this track. The danceable sex romp party anthem, You Shook Me All Night Long. enjoyable parts of researching this particular album for this episode was reading the hilarious and colorful quotes online from the critics who reviewed it both in 1980 when it came out and then years later for starters one of them called this song a quote drum hook fuck song and the band's quote only great work of art another one i liked in a retrospective review uh, critic Christian Horde praised this album as the band's greatest work, possibly the leanest and meanest record of all time. Balls out arena rock that punks could love. Jeff, if we re-ranked our top 100 list uh, again in a few years, this definitely probably makes my top 25, but the fact is I just haven't listened to it enough as of today and when we made this list to justify that high of a ranking. From beginning to end, this album is just so solid. One classic track after another, all-time guitar riffs from Angus Young, Brian Johnson's screeching vocals, another great, <laughs> another great quote from a critic, Quote, Brian Johnson sings on this album like there's a cattle prod at his scrotum. To me it makes good, good Another fun fact about Back in Black, I didn't know this, I think probably you did, Jeff, but one of the biggest producers in the industry over the last 30 years, Mutt Lang, was at the controls for this record. He's a big part of this record's success, if you ask me. You can hear on this album how he changed the band's sound to become more radio-friendly. Not only here, but on Highway to Hell, its predecessor. This is one of my favorites from the album. It's the bluesy closer, rock and roll, ain't noise pollution. Okay, are you finished? <laughs> yeah, that's the best I'm going to be able to do. That was your justification for putting it this low. You haven't listened to it much. Well... This still, yeah, you know, give me a give me a microscopic ounce of credit here at least for acknowledging. I wasn't gonna falsely rank this, <laughs> but I wanted to. I mean, I tried to at least give it the explanation in my little story there that, you know, this should be higher. But I just don't feel I I, I would. It's kind of a I'm not worthy <laughs> of ranking I'm, uh, it. Higher. I'm mostly playing, not really. But no, you're not. The uh, to me, this this album kind of transcends criticism. It transcends genre even you yeah. said you said early on it's not metal and you're absolutely right I, i've never considered it metal i considered it kind of dark and scary when i first got it because it was really one of the first albums that really got me into rock and roll if not the first yeah and it starts with hell's bells and some pretty dark tongue-in-cheek satanic type lyrics mm -hmm. which you now look at as just being funny and fun and uh, but when yeah. you're you know when you're uh, 13 years old maybe a little bit scary Almost doesn't matter whether the album is good, uh, whether the album is one of the best of all times or critically acclaimed. It's just so significant to me and so many other people our age that it transcends any kind of ranking or critical review. The conversation about whether this is a metal record, I agree with you. I have the same perspective as you. I just don't hear, I don't associate this with metal at all. But I think I think it was a very real association in 1980. I think there was a perception at least, because you really hadn't experienced bands like Metallica yet. So at that time, there was a very real sense that ACDC and, and also Van Halen 
sort of reignited the metal scene. So I think there's at least a little bit of credibility from that perspective. The whole album is sort of punctuated by Johnson's final lyric there. Rock and roll is just rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Brilliant lyrics. It's just, a, well, it's a great, but it's a, it's a funny, it, it takes on a, a fun context for me in, in thinking about what they had accomplished there by responding to the death of their leader. This record was recorded in a really compact period of time, which is even more remarkable when you consider how great it is. And so I just thought it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a classic ACDC sort of exclamation point on the end. Well, if it isn't clear yet, I'll have much more to say about it <laughs> in a future episode of The Pick 100. After that travesty, let me show you how to rank an ACDC album. Shut up! Hold up! From 1978, this is ACDC's Powered. After Liz Fair, this is the second band of supreme importance in my life that doesn't appear until the top 50. This is ACDC's fourth album with the legendary Bon Scott on lead vocal. So this album was the one that preceded Highway to Hell and by now ACDC had released some of their most enduring Bon Scott tunes such as It's a Long Way to the Top, TNT, Dirty Deeds, whole lot of Rosie and Let There Be Rock. And although Powerage does not contain a track as famous as any of those, it is their best collection before Highway to Hell and Back in Black shot them into the stratosphere. For me, it's partly due to the fact they strayed away a bit more from the traditional structure of verse-chorus, verse-chorus, guitar solo. Like in this song, one of my favorites, Down Payment Blues. And the opening to the album's closer, Kicked in the Teeth. Tell me, baby, I was your only one. Why you been running around town with every mother's son? many, including myself, this is the band's strongest album from a songwriting standpoint, showing that Bon Scott, the guy they hired to be a singer, was also a decent lyricist. This was really the first time they sang about things other than sex, drinking, or pretend Satanism. And it contains probably their best rock boogie song ever, the standout Riff Raff. Eddie Van Halen and Keith Richards both declared this was the best ACDC album. And for me, after listening to Highway to Hell and Back in Black about a million and six times each, when I look at the remainder of their albums as opposed to their songs, this is far apart from the rest. Great pick, Jeff. Another triumph for Antichrist, Devil's Child. Yeah. I think that, uh, I don't know about that, I don't know about that faux Satanism you're talking about. I mean, I'm pretty, pretty sure they were just straightforward with that, but <laughs> no, this was... This was fun stuff to listen to. I, I, I'm curious, was you, you kind of just answered it, so it sounds like the progression for you was started with Back in Black, then you said, I got to get deeper into the catalog here, and this was the next stop? Yes, well, as the legend has it, when I came home from the hospital after a skateboard accident and my father had bought me Back in Black at my request and I had dropped the needle on Hell's Bells, my life changed. <laughs> I do remember that very visually, 
the record player in the basement, and I remember my one hand being a completely in a cast, and the other one dropping the needle on that song, and mm-hmm. really being blown away. Having that strong of a memory associated with this band, I think that it just led me to want to explore everything else. And I'd heard a lot of their songs on the radio by then, and Highway to Hell being one of the main ones, so I think Highway to Hell was next. Yeah. Some friends at school got me into some of their older stuff, and mostly I, I listened to their older stuff from a song perspective. And I really didn't assess until just this year, in the last year, when I had to make this list. Hmm. Wait, which album as a whole really goes on my list? And Power just rose to the top. And as I began researching it, I found out that I share that belief with a lot of people. And that it really is probably their strongest free Highway to Hell album. Well, it's it's a it's a great album to illustrate. Uh, I thought the contributions of Bon Scott. I mean, you, you get that on Highway to Hell too. But he is particularly fun. I thought on this record, he, he started. I don't know if you knew this. Bon Scott was originally a drummer. Did you know that? No, actually. And clearly found his calling as the uh, the front man and not only vocalist but as you say lyricist of this band. But there's so much more diversity to ACDC if you really just give them a chance to and, and you, you explore their catalog. I mean, I think they get they get sort of bottlenecked into that very bounded sound that you hear on some of their tunes. But they they go in a lot of really cool directions on this record. I, I agree, and it's what I miss. That's what I miss from them, because I thought they lost that after uh, For Those About to Rock. Yeah. Their albums just became the same thing, you know, three-and-a-half-minute songs that had the same pattern every time can find the, the differences a lot more on the Bon Scott records. And uh, he also, you know, a lot of humor in these songs, and <laughs> uh, some of the lyrics when you listen to them are, and that's why I call it pretend Satanism. I mean... It's just, it's just kind of like they're fulfilling that rock band, uh, I guess, quotient for references to the devil that people yeah. thought they probably had to have back in the 80s. Well, there's, there's a definite signature to the songs lyrically and obviously vocally with Bon Scott versus Brian Johnson. I don't know that Brian Johnson really was, was the lyricist or the creative writer in terms of his contributions as Bon Scott was. So... That is how you properly rank an ACDC <laughs> album, number 46, for Powerage, whereas Back in Black should be much higher. Yeah, for those of you that uh, need to go back and listen, I, I, issued, I issued a disclaimer earlier. Now at number 46, a greatest hit collection from The Who, Meaty Beaty, Big and Bouncy. So the lead track on this Greatest Hits collection from 1971 is I Can't Explain, which is just the second single the band ever released, and this came out in 1965. Meaty Beaty, Big and Bouncy gives you 14 classic Who singles released from the mid-60s to the late 60s, just prior to the 1969 arrival of their first rock opera, Tommy, which had one of these singles, this song, Pinball Wizard, as its centerpiece. Ever since I was a young boy, a lot of fun memories for me of discovering this band and this record. It was my freshman year in high school. And you know, when you start high school, you're in a whole new big fishbowl and here I am meeting new friends and music really helps strike up a conversation. One new buddy and his older brother actually were into the fashion and the music of the quote mod subculture of the, of the late 60s from England. And the Who's early catalog was kind of their soundtrack. So this was probably the first music I added to my collection that had a real obvious punk influence. And one quick side note, by the way, on this album, uh, it's named after the members of the band, Meaty, is Roger Daltrey, who was uh, quite fit apparently at the time. Beatty is Keith Moon for his drumming. Big is John Entwistle, the bassist, who was a rather large person apparently and was referred to sometimes as the Ox. And then Bouncy was guitarist, the legend, Pete Townsend, who jumped around quite a bit acrobatically apparently uh, during performances. I can see for miles and miles and miles and So, Jeff, 
the excitement for me in, in discovering this group was kind of moving away from Rush and Zeppelin into, into rock that just had a little bit more of an edge or, as I said before, kind of a punk feel to it. A band that I didn't dig too deep into their catalog. In fact, Tommy and Quadrophenia, you know, landmark albums are not going to make my list, but I had to include The Who's somewhere in my list. And this, this Greatest Hits really serves as a great introduction to their catalog. Yes, I, uh, I've always liked The Who. Actually, one of my first albums I remember getting, um, well, I, I won't say one of the first, but one of the early albums I owned was uh, It's Hard by The Who, which yeah. was one of their later albums. I really like the song Eminence Front, and... Uh, um, it was one of the first discs I bought, I remember, as far as buying my own records. But as time went on, I, I grew to appreciate their older stuff much more. I, I got a CD, one of my first CDs was uh, Who's Next, and also yeah. Tommy, the double CD. You know, I, I'm not as compelled as you are to have to have a band on my list if I didn't listen to their album. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the Who on my list because although I do like those albums, they're not quite as much as the other hundred that I have. Right. However, I will say I think I'm not too happy with this choice as far as the greatest hits album. I think it's got a lot of great hits on it, but I just think the the power of the album Tommy is more deserving on a list than a greatest hits collection. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. These guys, this this period that this focuses on too is I think a time when they were you know kind of in the shadow of the Beatles. And you do bring up a good point. I think as the 70s unfolded, albums like Tommy and then Quadrophenia and Who's Next and Who Are You, those were those were the albums that really became sort of the foundation or the legacy of The Who. So there's my number 46 pick, The Who, an early greatest hits record, Meaty Beaty, Big and Bouncy. So we here at The Pick care about our listeners. And we've noticed that these episodes might be a little bit long since we talk so much. So you can find picks number 45 through 41 in the next episode.